Welcome and thank you so much for attending our um, workshop on best practices for the virtual hearing. Um, I'm Sarah Katz and I, I teach at Temple Law School and I direct the Family Law Litigation Clinic in the Temple Legal Aid Office and we're joined by our Director of Trial Advocacy here at Temple Law School. We're not physically here, we're here in my bedroom, but, uh, <laughs> um, but at Temple Law School. And then Shi Sertran, who is a staff attorney at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia and also a Temple alum and formerly worked in the Temple Legal Aid Office. So um, we have that as well in common. Um, and we're we're glad to get started. Um, you want to take it away, Liz? Yeah, if you want me to. All right. So welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for having us. Um, the first slide we wanted to, to sneak in here and make sure that we start this webinar off on a positive note. So there are a lot of negatives that can be said about remote proceedings, but what we wanted to point out are all of the benefits. And so those of you who have already done any hearings virtually, you already know that it saves time and money. We don't have to travel. It helps our clients, it helps witnesses, um, depending obviously on technology issues, which we will talk about. What we have seen is that many people actually are much more comfortable. Um, as Sarah kind of jokes, she's in her bedroom right now. And you know, if you're in the environment that you're used to, some witnesses are actually put at ease. Uh, not only that, but it's more convenient for scheduling purposes. Courts can actually pursue these hearings and have these hearings. And so just because the pandemic has basically shut down the world, it certainly doesn't mean that it should shut down the justice for all of our clients. Some of the negative things about online advocacy, many people say that you're not able to actually gauge credibility. And I, I have to say, I, I kindly disagree because I think that with the zoomed in version, if you're able to see the video feed of somebody's face, I think that you can actually get even more of a read on the person in these online forums. Now, obviously the, the benefit of health and safety and not having to wear a mask, for example, is extremely helpful when having to advocate on behalf of our clients. Um, and what we're seeing as well, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's actually better attendance at hearings and people can attend and they don't have to worry about putting themselves or other people in danger. So this webinar is going to have basically three parts. The first part is going to primarily be me, although Sarah and Chisar, please chime in whenever. Uh, I'm going to talk about tips and tricks for attorneys and then we'll go through some ways to handle evidence in a Zoom hearing or an online hearing because it is different. We can no longer approach a witness, for example, with a hard copy of a document and it, it can be somewhat challenging. So I'm going to teach you guys some tricks as far as how to approach that. And then last but not least, we'll discuss preparing and handling witnesses. So there are definitely some different steps that you're going to want to take to make sure that your witnesses and or clients are more comfortable in the online hearing that they may have to testify at. So let's get started. I love tips and tricks for online advocacy. Who knew that seven months ago, um, all of a sudden when I pivoted some of what I do in my private career, as well as at Temple Law School, we would become kind of experts in this online field. First and foremost, I think it's important to cover briefly, knowing your technology as well as your equipment. Um, you need to make sure that you put your best foot forward, right? And so as an attorney, when we go into a brick and mortar courtroom, we usually suit up, we look our best, 
and we're going to make sure that our client is well represented. And frankly, it should be no different, even though you're in an online hearing. You need to know ahead of time and understand the platforms ahead of time. For me, Zoom is the easiest, but I understand a lot of different court systems are not necessarily using Zoom. I wish they all did, frankly. Um, but you need to familiarize yourself with that so that you can actually use some of the advanced options. I always like to think of these online hearings, frankly, as being able to try every single hearing in a high-tech courtroom, because many courtrooms don't allow us, for example, to be able to use technology for purposes of exhibits. Now, oftentimes people ask, all right, how do I make sure that I have the best Wi-Fi connectivity? What happens when my technology craps out on me? And I think first and foremost, you guys need to exercise patience, and maybe that goes without saying, but technology is what it is, and if it were perfect, then nobody would even want to attend this webinar, right? But it's not perfect, but for now, it's a perfect replacement for what we need to be doing. So some things that you can do preemptively to make sure that you have the best Wi-Fi connectivity. My first suggestion to everybody always is if you have a computer that can connect directly into your modem with an ethernet cable, that by far is going to be your best connection. Now, most of the newer computers like a Mac, for example, may not have the right connector on the actual computer, but you can certainly buy an adapter so that you can actually plug directly into your modem. If you're not able to do that, believe it or not, just moving your computer closer to where your modem is located also increases your Wi-Fi bandwidth. The other big troubleshooters is make sure that other people in the house are not streaming Netflix, for example. Um, online games like Call of Duty, my husband's pretty guilty of playing that often. Um, if you can make sure that whenever you're on your hearing that people are not actually using those items in your household, that is equally important. If you want to invest, you can actually purchase a router that has different Wi-Fi bands. So in my house right now, I have a, a router that has three different bands and I have my own Wi-Fi band. And so what that means is that I don't need to worry that my children are playing Call of Duty or that they're streaming Netflix because they're actually sucking off of a different Wi-Fi band than I am. So things that we're probably gonna be facing more so as we get hopefully past the pandemic are things like people in the same room. If any of you guys have actually been in the same room with somebody else on the same Zoom call, it's a recipe for disaster because of the feedback and all of the technology issues. To the extent that you and a witness are in the same room, it makes sense to either turn off the sound of one of the online platforms to make sure that you minimize the feedback. Alternatively, if possible, when safe, and you can socially distance still while in the same room, it may also make sense to be on the same camera feed to avoid some of those problems. When testifying or when you are acting, when you're an attorney in an online hearing, what I've seen many judges ask of witnesses is to be able to see their hands because that's a way that the judge can be assured, for example, that a witness is not texting with their attorney, that they're not being coached in some other way. Um, and similarly, we as attorneys, I think, would have a better view as well. And so right now, I'm looking at my camera. It's super hard to get used to. But I think that in order to make it look like I am giving you all eye contact as you're watching this webinar, similarly, when you're in an online hearing, you have to kind of practice looking at the camera instead of actually the person on the screen that you may be wanting to speak to. 
The other things um, you want to think about the lighting. I don't know why these are all out of order. Sorry about that. The lighting as well as the actual camera angle. And so there are a couple of slides here that show uh, with regard to lighting, natural light is by far the best. So if you or the witnesses that you're going to be preparing have a window in their house that they can just put their computer in front of, that's going to be the optimal lighting. You want to avoid lighting from behind and from overhead. Um, and instead, as these photographs show, have the lighting coming at you kind of in a three-point angle from the front. And then similarly, with regard to the camera angle, if your integrated camera on your laptop or whatever computer you're using is down low, to the extent possible, even if it's old school, put it up on books to make sure that you're actually looking at your camera angle is actually eye level so that you don't even have to really worry about the fact that you're looking at the camera in order to make eye contact. This is one of my favorite slides ever. Um, if you wouldn't do it in person, don't do it in a, in a virtual courtroom. I've had judges complain to me about attorneys wearing bathrobes during hearings. And I'm just like, huh, I wonder if I would ever wear a bathrobe in a courtroom. And the answer is obviously no. Um, similarly, if you wouldn't be driving to Starbucks during a hearing, it's probably not appropriate to do it even though you can. So there's a lot of great things re with regard to these virtual hearings, but obviously treat them still professionally and approach it like it is a judge's courtroom. To the extent possible, minimize your pet distractions. We've probably all been on an online uh, meeting at this point where you see a cat going in front of you, or in my case, one of my many children coming up and interrupting and Zoom bombing in person. Um, to the extent possible, when you actually have to be in and hearing online, just try to have like a note on the door or somewhere where you're not gonna necessarily be disrupted. And of course, as always, be professional. Okay, so let's talk home and auto bundle. We all know customers can save big. Um, so we're talking 24-7 protection as it... <clears throat> Mara, hello. Yeah. We can see you on your phone. Oh, my bad. You can continue. I think she's still on the phone. So look, I can tell you that most judges would be upset if you did that in a brick and mortar courtroom. Just because you're online doesn't mean that you should be able to check your emails during the hearing. Frankly, your client deserves better. Um, so act even more. Okay, so no, it's in an online hearing. Now, as an advocacy director, um, I feel like I have to at least address this. And that's the advocacy side of when we're appearing in court online. This slide says up your game. What do I mean by that? I mean that online hearings are boring. Um, I probably would say that they're more boring than in-person hearings. And if they're boring for us as attorneys, they're boring for the fact finder. And so I, I joke with a lot of the students that I teach now online that I need to use my jazz hands and my spirit fingers as much as possible to maintain the attention of the fact finder. So even just stopping the feed of the PowerPoint probably got your attention a little bit, right? So there are ways that you can actually help it utilize the platform to change things up and make your advocacy that much more important and much more heard by the fact finder. You want to make sure, sorry, 
don't do that. You want to make sure that you are short and sweet and concise, unlike me rambling right now. Um, you don't want to necessarily bog down the court with a huge lengthy argument in an online hearing. By all means, don't go too lengthy with your direct or cross. If you're eliciting testimony from a witness, you want to make sure that you get what you need and you get out because everybody at this point, seven months later, and we were just talking about it, the three of us, we are tired and nobody wants to sit in front of their screens longer than they have to. So what I was playing, which shouldn't have played at that time, is a court Zoom demonstration. See, that's me upping my game. I know that I have to keep your... Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. And I know that this is not usual in a webinar. Turn your video feeds on, everybody. That's, that's brave enough to do so, thank you. Everybody who's brave enough to do so, I just want to try to show some things that happen in these Zoom hearings. And I like to be interactive because, frankly, we're all bored, right? Now, I am currently looking at, there's actually 84 people in here. Wow, bless you all. So I'm looking at all of these lovely faces, and this is clearly not ideal for a courtroom, right? Like, I don't want to have to be distracted by what that person's doing in the corner, what that person's doing in the corner. In Zoom and in many of the online platforms, you can actually hide non-video participants. Does everybody know how to do that at this point? Because if not, I'll just do it real quick. So um, I'm going to hand pick. Jolene, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, okay. And then I'll keep on. Let's get Brandon, if you guys can keep your video feed on with Sarah and she, Sarah and me, and the rest of you guys go ahead and turn it back off. Whenever I'm in Zoom, I prefer to be in the gallery view. So in the top right-hand corner, when you click on view, choose gallery view. Now, if you currently are seeing all of those black thumbnails of everybody else whose video feed is off, there's a really quick way to get rid of that. So pick any one of those thumbnails. If you're seeing the black thumbnails with their names, are you guys seeing that or is everybody already high? Okay. Click any of those people at the top right-hand corner. If you put your mouse over top of one of their feeds, there's a blue ellipses, the dot, dot, dot. Zoom, for whatever reason, is obsessed with these ellipses, and they're everywhere. But if you click on the ellipses, I think the bottom option says hide non-video participants. So go ahead and do that, and it'll be like magic with Houdini. And it's going to minimize the number of thumbnails that you actually see on your screen. Um, and so Brandon and Jolene, so Don and Jeanette, thank you for joining us. I'm going to ask you to turn your video feed off, though, so I can actually simulate what, how I would have a screen view for purposes of a hearing online. If, all right, so somebody said that they think only people in charge can do that, and I disagree. If you find anybody's thumbnail that has their turn, video feed turned off and you click on the dot, 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 you're going to be able to hide non-video participants. I promise, I assure you. And at this point, no, I didn't. See, I have somebody who's supporting me. Now I've got the video feed of six people up. And sorry, Brandon and Jolene to put you on the spot, but you were brave enough to put your feet on earlier. That's what you get. You'll never take my classes and you'll learn your lesson never to volunteer either. So let's pretend that I am the attorney that is questioning Sarah Katz. Um, Jolene is now the judge and Brandon is opposing counsel. So maybe she, Sarah, is our interpreter here in the hearing. So maybe her video feed should still be on. The fact of the matter is 84 of you guys are in this room and right now you're only seeing six people. I think this is really an ideal viewing option for any of these online platforms so that you can get rid of all of the other thumbnails and not be as distracted, all right? Now, you can go back and turn your video feed off if I put you on the spot too much. We can go back to the original viewing. 
If you guys click on share screen, I'm just kind of curious, two of you, Brandon, keep on so I can see. When you click on share screen, are you able to right now or is it disabled for you? It looks like you might be able to. All right, if everybody without actually sharing your screen can do me a favor right now and click on that green button at the bottom that says share screen. What happens is you get that pop-up, right? And the pop-up has everything on your screen that is currently open on your desktop. Because in order to share an exhibit on screen, you have to have it open on your computer. Now, you're probably like, duh, Liz, right? I knew that. But think about it in regards to if you have a hearing, let's say, that has 50 exhibits. If you think about having 50 exhibits open on your desktop to be able to share them at any given time, that terrifies me because I wouldn't be able to keep track of them all and I would probably end up sharing the wrong thing, right? So what I wanna show you guys right now is what I call a bookmarked PDF. What I recommend with exhibits is actually compiling them into one document and then bookmark it so you can easily navigate through that PDF and then click share screen and it's just one document that's open on your computer screen. We have a handout, I'm not sure if it went out yet, um, but it does go through step-by-step step how to actually do that. So I'm not gonna waste our time because we have a lot to talk about in this hour, um, but that is one of my pointers with regard to making sure that we can share screen effectively to be able to show our exhibits. So I wanna talk about how to admit exhibits, how to create a digital trial binder, and then obviously publishing exhibits. So admitting exhibits online is not that different than what we're used to in a brick and mortar courtroom. Obviously the big difference, if you all probably know the dance, right? Mark, show it to opposing counsel, approach the witness, ask the questions, ask the court to accept it into the record, and then you would publish it, right? Um, in an online hearing, the obvious differences are I can't necessarily physically approach with a piece of paper that I have handwritten what exhibit number it is. So we need to be able to come up with ways to adapt. The ways that I have come up with for purposes of online hearings for adapting is basically there are three ways that you can submit exhibits to the witness. One is via email ahead of time. Two is some of the online platforms allow you to upload files to the chat box and then they can download it. And the third um, is by way of share screen. So most of these hearings that are happening online are not necessarily jury trials. We don't have to worry about showing the jury, for example, an exhibit that has not yet been admitted. Um, so from, in my opinion, the best way to approach it are, are any of those three ways. And what we'll talk about when it comes to witnesses is it depends on what technology they're using as to which approach you're gonna to wanna to take. So creating a digital trial binder, what do I even mean by that, my goodness. It's hard to pre-mark exhibits, and so what one of the things that the handout is going to explain to you is how to do it. So when I compile all of my exhibits into one PDF that I have bookmarked for each of the exhibits, I'm also going to try to pre-mark my exhibit so long as the court is okay with that. So obviously, if I end up introducing exhibit 10 before exhibit five, I would make sure that the court is aware I'm gonna to continue to refer to it as exhibit 10, even if it's coming in out of order. Um, I want to, what I'm showing you on the screen right now is basically what we have as our handouts. 
And if you guys see in the left-hand column next to this tacked document, these are what's called a bookmark. So when you guys actually have a bookmarked PDF, you can click on any one of those and it would automatically take you to that page. It's actually fairly easy to go ahead and create that. And like I said, we're gonna, it's in there, it's handwritten. I'm not gonna go through that right now. With regard to marking the exhibits, there are also instructions in the document that we're gonna hand out. Um, I think there are four easy ways to do it. You could either have a separation page that at the bottom has the exhibit number. In the PDF, you could add text. There's also a stamp and Bates numbering issue and a header and footer, which again, the details are in the handout. Importantly though, is when you have this massive PDF document that's bookmarked, how do you get it to the court? How do you get it to the witness? Often it's too big. Um, this screenshot actually just shows how to compress something into what's called a zip file. So it makes a massive document able to be emailed. So literally once you have your PDF document and, and trial binder of ready to go, just right click on it. And then you're gonna click on send to and one of the options is to send to a compressed zipped folder. That will enable you to email it to a judge or the witness without any problem regarding the size. So here's what a lot of people mess up on is how do we publish exhibits? I treat a Zoom screen or a WebEx screen, um, whatever the platform is, like I treat the courtroom. And so whenever an exhibit is admitted, I ask the court for permission to share screen, just like I would ask the court for permission to publish or even permission to approach a witness. You gotta treat the Zoom room the same way. Um, those of you who are, and I think that this, the share screen is enabled, if anybody is brave enough, I'm not asking to share your emails, but if somebody were willing to click on share screen at the bottom and then choose the whiteboard option, and you just do that by clicking on whiteboard and then clicking on share in the bottom right hand corner. Thank you, Jillian, you're so brave. All right, we are currently looking at Jillian's uh, whiteboard and it could very well also be an exhibit if we were, wanted to see an exhibit. I wanted to show you a really cool thing that Zoom has and a lot of the online platforms have. Once somebody is sharing their screen, you get a new toolbar. Up at the top, you see in green that it says you're viewing Jillian Copeland's screen. And then to the right of it, it says view options. Go ahead and everybody can do this, but keep it clean, please. Click on view options. And then one of the options is annotate. When you click on annotate, you get your own little toolbar and you can, yes, Zach, you got it. Um, go ahead and play. Like we can totally create a Picasso right now with all of the people that are in here. Isn't this cool? So if you think about this with regard to an exhibit, for example, you could have a witness annotate an exhibit once it's entered into evidence. Now the downside is this beautiful Picasso, it has now been contributed to by whoever's paying attention, right? So you need to make sure that if a witness is able to annotate an exhibit during a hearing, that that annotation is in fact by the witness. And before, thank you, Karen, for the love. Um, all right, before we get off of the annotation, on that same toolbar, I just want to show you guys something that kind of terrifies me. The second to last button says save and it has like an arrow down. If you click on that, you're going to get a pull down screen that says show in folder. So if you click on the blue show in folder after clicking on save, it's going to pop up that Zoom has infiltrated your computer without you even knowing it and you actually have a Zoom folder on your desktop. It's terrifying, right? I wanted to also point that out though, because if you do have a witness create this lovely 
annotated exhibit, you could also save it and make it part of the record if you wanted to. All right, thank you, Jillian, for sharing screen. You can go ahead and stop that so we don't get any crazier with that. Whew, I'm, I'm speaking at like a crazy rate right now, but now I did. Excuse me, Liz, it's Natalie Bogerman. Do you, want me to, do you want me to launch the poll and, and give you a little bit of a breather? <laughs> it's perfect because I did my part exactly in the time that I was supposed to. I'm sorry that I'm speaking at a rate that I would never I get in there and do the poll. Do you want me to stop sharing? Oh, no, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Uh, I just want to let everyone know that I am launching the first of two polls. Um, this uh, poll will be active for about two minutes. You need to make sure to click on it uh, in order to get your CLE credits. There's two. You need to click both in order to, um, to get that. So I will leave this up. You guys can keep going. Um, the poll will vanish, uh, you know, it'll go away whenever we're done and you can keep on with what you're doing. All right, cool. <clears throat> so it, do you, does anybody have questions right now or want me to kind of go through any other advanced kind of Zoom stuff before we move forward to preparing and handling witnesses? Nobody's paying attention. <laughs> no questions at all. All right, all right, cool. Let me uh, screen share this and I'm going to hand the mic off to both Sarah and she Sarah. Okay. Great. Okay. So now once you've thought about how to make sure all of your technology is working and functional, you also need to think about your own client and any witnesses that you're going to be um, going to be using. Um, one really important tip is um, is that you want to try to the extent possible to prep your witnesses via the online platform. Um, if it's Zoom you're going to be using, use Zoom. If the court is using something else, um, I practiced in family court, so we're using Ring Central. Figured out we can download like a trial run free Ring Central to be able to utilize to um, prep uh, our clients or, or other witnesses. So in an ideal world, you're going to be using the platform to prep. And that is a good chance to work on some other issues that may come up. You also really want to upfront think about um, any technology issues. How is your client or the witness going to participate? So what, what device are they going to be using um, to participate? Um, How's the Wi-Fi where they're going to be using and and um, and learning you know little tips and tricks like um, just like Zoom Ring Central that we're using in Family Court functions a lot better if you download the app um, and run it off of that even though you could run it from your browser um, your internet browser so you want to communicate that to your own client and to the witnesses and encourage them to download the app so that they can. Um, may can they may be able to uh to uh um to use that um i see a question about using cell phones and so i'll i'll get to that um yeah you want to talk with your client about what device they're going to use one um some of the question was you know if, if many clients have smartphones and that's what they're going to use i think that's fine but you want to have the conversation with them um, about how they're going to use it. For example, can, can they prop it up somewhere so that there's a good, you know, you still want to think about all the same tips that Liz just gave you about, you know, where is the camera and how much lighting there is and, and all of that. 
Um, and you can do that with a smartphone too. You just might have to be a little creative. Maybe there's like a pile of books up to here and then, you know, propping up the smartphone against another one or something like that. Um, and that can work fine. Where I've seen it not go so fine is where someone's like holding it and their head is shaking and their hands are shaking and uh, it doesn't make for um, a great view for the court. Um, in that sense. The other issue with just devices, particularly for our client population and legal services is, um, you know, our clients may or may not have more than one device. And so you're going to have to think about that in advance. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the ethical issues. Obviously, you can't be texting your client in the middle of their testifying. Um, but uh, but you know, how are you gonna communicate with your client and just making sure that, and we'll come back to this issue, but just making sure you kind of are having the conversation about what tech is gonna be using. You really wanna try out the online platform with your client or witness to see how it's gonna work. Sometimes when we do that, we discover all sorts of problems. Um, you want to um, suggest where they testify. I mean, as Liz just said, like beyond the fact that you all are getting a little view into my bedroom right now, um, the reality is, is that all the clients and witnesses are getting a little view into um, their, you know, their homes for the most part or wherever they may be for the hearing, for better or for worse, right? And so, you know, in, in these, uh, couple months of now doing these virtual hearings, I've seen it, I've seen it run the gamut. I've seen an opposing party like perfectly orchestrate the background um, to look like the, I mean, literally like lining up pictures of him with the child who was an issue in the custody case and everything was very neat and arranged and there's sort of, you know, perfectly like kid appropriate stuff in the background. And so, I mean, it really looked almost like staged for the purposes of um, the hearing, like expertly so. Um, whereas I've also had um, parties appear in hearings where it like not, not staged at all. In fact, like I had the experience this week of a client who had told me he'd be participating from his computer at his desk instead at the last minute elected to participate sitting on the cover of the toilet so he wasn't going to the bathroom but literally we got a plumb view of you know his open shelves with all of his toiletries behind them um, and because he came on late to the hearing I didn't really have a chance to do anything about it there was nothing I could do and we had had the conversation up front about um, you know about background so um, that's going to be really important. You really want to talk, you know, as difficult as it is, and even I, I am forgetting to, I'm looking at the picture as opposed to looking at the camera, like practice having eye contact by looking at the camera, suggest the, the camera view and the angle. Um, and also, I mean, this comes up a lot for, for me in the kinds of cases that I handle, but often like our client and other witnesses that may participate are going to be in the same place for the hearing. And so um, think through how you're going to maintain appropriate privacy to the extent that there's going to be sequestration of witnesses. Um, are they going to be using the same device to participate? Is there another room where you know, a witness, um, I mean, again, I, I do a lot of custody. So like your client may be in one room, but then you might need their partner and or the child in another room to be available and ready to testify and thinking through um, all of the, um, the various tech issues there. Um, the one other, you know, a couple other things to think about when thinking about, you know, working with our client population is, um, you know, thinking 
rescues, right? Like one of the unique things about doing, um, you know, just like for us, right? I, I think we've all been Zoom bombed, uh, those of us that are parents by some small child, more times than I can count at this point. Um, but also, um, you know, for our clients or the witnesses, like where are any children going to be? Is there going to be someone to watch them? Is there a way for them to not be in the home? Where are pets going to be if they're going to, you know, make noise or be um, disruptive? So having, you know, those conversations as well and trying to help the client and or witness problem solve um, those sorts of challenges is going to be really important um, in advance as you're thinking about prep. And Sarah, if you don't mind me also addressing Alfonso's question real quick, because yep. exhibit use, it does matter what device a witness is on. So for example, I think ideal worlds, our clients would have a computer so that they can pull up the exhibit without stopping their video feed so that you can ask whatever questions it is to lay the foundation to admit the exhibits with a tablet or a smartphone, oftentimes with many of the online platforms, once you leave that platform, the video feed automatically turns off. And so that's an additional thing that you need to think about as the attorney, once you identify what technology your witness or client is gonna be using, is how it is that you're gonna be able to actually ask the witness questions about the exhibits without having their video feed turned off. And so, as I said before, since it's not a jury trial, one of the fixes that you could do is share screen to ask questions about it, even though it's not already admitted into the record. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's the fact, the judge is the fact finder, so it's not that big of a deal. Um, or you can even just mail like hard copies to the witness if you know and you have enough time ahead of time to do so. Yeah, and I, I, I'm finding that that, um you know what the plan is going to be totally individual fact specific on on your client but yes i mean sometimes we have been just mailing the entire exhibit binder to the client in advance to the extent there's time or, or arranging a way for them to have a paper version to participate um and the one other thing is like for some of our clients we can't they like just don't have appropriate tech they're relying on a phone that you know they pay by the minute and they're not they might run out of minutes if the hearing goes long um they might not have consistent wi-fi access so you might need to get creative about where that you know and help them kind of figure out and whether you know if you are able to bring the client or witness to your office to use a computer there we did get um permission to use a conference room with a pc like just for that purpose to have our clients participate in hearings where they really don't have a other way to to do that um and then yes definitely thinking through a lot of our clients are more comfortable with having like a paper version of the exhibit binder even if we've um, submitted but again it's going to depend on your your hearing i've i'm finding that you know different judges and masters that i practice in front of have different practices in terms of how you know the screen sharing um, we had a trial yesterday that went beautifully because the judge himself was very comfortable with screen share. And as we referenced each exhibit, he would just pull it up and screen share and we could kind of, um, you know, move from there. And it actually made things go very, you know, very well. So um, it'll depend on also the practice and the um, proceeding that you're, that you're handling. Um, so as I mentioned before, virtual hearings do create unique challenges with communicating with your client during the hearing. Um, so you need to have a conversation with your client about how you'll communicate during the hearing. Obviously, just like um, in a brick and mortar courtroom, you can't communicate with your client during their testimony, right? There are rules of professional conduct that still apply. Um, 
you need to think about, you know, depending on what platform you're using, um, you know, if you do need to communicate during the hearing, are you communicating via another device? Are you using, um, if there is a private chat function um, in the, um, you know, in the whatever online platform that you're using. Um, again, I mean, my experience so far with these hearings has been mostly on Ring Central because that's what Philadelphia Family Court is using. And I've felt my own discomfort with, with the idea of using the private chat function, even though, you know, there's been reassurances from the court that, um, you know, that aspect of it is not recorded, that it really is private. Um, I haven't really felt comfortable having that be the way um, that we communicate with the client. So um, we've mostly been trying to, to the extent we're not in the same location for the hearing, think about using another device for texting or simply like help, you know, make a plan with the client to say like if, if there needs to be a moment where we take a break and we all mute ourselves and get on the phone or something like that, um, that may need to be what happens. And just remember, do remember the mute button. Um, I've already seen too many examples of people uh, forgetting that and, you know, starting to have an attorney-client conversation that although it's via phone and should not be being heard is being picked up on the online platform because they didn't hit mute um, or starting to even have what should be a privileged conversation. Um, Sarah, what I will show is worse than having the confidential conversation if anybody caught this back in like April I think oops where it go yeah and what the FCC has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic then the call is transformed I absolutely love that video, but for those of you guys who couldn't actually read what it says, if you recall when the United States Supreme Court had their first telephonic arguments, there was somebody call his mute button off so they could be heard flushing the toilet. So not just learn the mute button for purposes of what Sarah just said with client confidentiality, um, but also obviously don't go to the bathroom with the mute off. So we already touched a bit but you need to make a plan about how you're going to make sure that your client or other witnesses are going to have access to um, the exhibits that you're going to be using um, so you know you can email that to them if prior to the hearing if they have a computer and you're going to be able to toggle between the two um, using the share screen function if um, if that's an option, um, just good old snail mail, like mailing them the exhibit binder that you um, took such time and care to create per the, the wonderful instructions of Liz, um, or using the annotation toolbar, which um, Liz has already showed you how to, how to do. Um, I'll turn things over to Chi Sir. Thanks. So my portion of the training is going to cover how to work effectively with interpreters and with clients who are limited English proficient, or LEP, particularly when it involves remote proceedings. Making sure that LEP individuals have quality language assistance to navigate the legal system leads to better access to justice. A lot of what I'm going to talk about today applies to good advocacy in general when working with LEP clients and interpreters, but it's especially important in cases that involve video or phone proceedings. We all know that using an interpreter on a case requires more time. We also know that phone and video hearings generally involve more complications. 
That's why it's especially important when you're working with an interpreter during a remote hearing to do it well. So first, we'll start with some basics. We're going to start with some basic terminology, and then we'll talk about the interpreter's role and then your role. So oftentimes, people conflate the term interpreter and translator, but they're actually two different set of skills. An interpreter is a person who is specially trained to convert oral messages from one language to another. So for example, during a client interview, if my client speaks Burmese, I would need an interpreter to interpret what the client says into English so that I understand and vice versa. A translator is a person who is specially trained to convert written text from one language to another. So if I'm sending a letter to my client in English about her hearing date, I need to trans get it translated into Spanish if my client speaks Spanish so that she understands. This portion of the training is about working with an interpreter, particularly during uh, remote proceedings. There are two main forms of interpretation. There's simultaneous interpretation and consecutive interpretation. Simultaneous interpretation is when an interpreter interprets while the speaker is talking. So it's pretty much at the same time and it's pretty remarkable. I don't know how people do it, um, but it's very impressive. Consecutive interpretation is also um, a unique set of skills, but the interpreter interprets after the speaker stops talking. So from remote proceedings, we want consecutive interpretation. Why? Because it's hard enough understanding who's speaking when you're on the phone or a video most of the time. And also because it makes the record clear for the transcript. Now, the interpreter's role is to act as a conduit between you and the client. This means that the interpreter should add nothing, change nothing, and omit nothing. They shouldn't have any side conversations with the client. The uh, interpreter should not be communicating with the client in, absence, in the absence of the advocate. Now, your responsibility is to, your role is to take responsibility for communication with the client. Your job is to explain or break down information so that the client understands what you're talking about. Your job is to manage the flow of conversation. For example, your client shouldn't be speaking in paragraphs because that's harder for the interpreter to keep up with um, and, and to interpret what was said. Your client speaking for longer amounts of time increases the chances that something is going to get lost during interpretation. So if you notice this happening, you should ask the client to pause after a sentence or two so that you can make sure that the interpreter is able to interpret everything accurately. And your job is also to handle problems with the interpreter. Always maintain control. As I mentioned earlier, your client and the interpreter should never be having a side conversation or going back and forth without you. You shouldn't allow the interpreter to answer for the LEP person um, and, again, insist on full interpretation. So here we're going to talk about some tips on working with interpreters. The first one is to talk directly to the LEP person, not the interpreter. For example, you should say, why did you go into that building? You should say it directly to your witness, not to the interpreter. Please ask witness why she went into that building. And remember, that's because the interpreter is the conduit. They're almost supposed to be invisible. Um, you should also use clear, direct speech when speaking through the interpreter. And you should speak in short, simple sentences and keep them to one to two sentences at a time for clarity. You should speak unhurriedly and take pauses. You might need to speak more slowly, and this doesn't come naturally to everyone. I know I tend to speak faster, and this takes practice. You should also avoid jargon. 
It's your job to explain concepts, not the interpreters. If your client doesn't know what an independent contractor is, for example, you need to break that down and explain it in simpler terms, not rely on the interpreter to do so. And finally, you should allow the interpreter to finish interpreting before you start speaking again. Now, tips for remote hearings using interpreters. You should make sure that the interpreter is present on the line. I recently had a phone hearing in which we started half an hour late, partly because of tech delays. But then once the judge was on the phone, we realized that the interpreter who had been on the line in the beginning was no longer on the line. And the judge had to delay the hearing to get the interpreter back on or else we couldn't communicate with the client. You should also speak up if you have trouble hearing or understanding the interpreter. I had another phone hearing in which the interpreter's voice sounded very muffled on the speaker, and that made it hard to understand what the interpreter was saying. I had to keep asking the interpreter to repeat herself or repeatedly ask her to hold the phone further from her mouth because it sounded like she was holding it very close, um, which made it sound very muffled. And at times, I even repeated what I believe the interpreter said for the record because I wanted to make it clear for the record. You should also make sure your client tells you if they have trouble hearing or understanding. And it's important to prep with your client beforehand so that they and you can practice communicating through the interpreter and keeping sentences short and taking pauses. As Sarah mentioned, uh, the, um, it's very important to do witness prep before the hearing so that you can pinpoint and troubleshoot a lot of tech issues. Um, oh, and one more thing um, for the last slide. If you notice a lot of background noise or interference while you're prepping with the client, such as a lot of typing or rustling of papers, that's a great time to remind the client to limit those because those sounds are often audible and they're ampli uh, amplified over the receiver during um, a remote um, um, proceeding, which makes it hard for the interpreter to understand. Now, um, my final slide, best practices on working with remote, uh, remote interpreters. You should have a trained interpreter available throughout the entire course of your representation, not just at the hearing. A lot of times, LEP clients are used to bringing along their children to interpret during appointments or meetings, and that's highly inappropriate. Okay. We should never be relying on our client, client's child to be the interpreter. Like many kids who grew up in immigrant or refugee families, I served as my family's unofficial interpreter from a young age when a trained interpreter wasn't provided at, for example, the doctor's office or a police station. And my parents should have been provided trained interpreters. Second, you should double check before the hearing to confirm that an, interpre an interpreter is going to be present. You don't want to have to postpone or delay a hearing because there was miscommunication about whether an interpreter was going to be there. Or even worse, you don't want to proceed, um, proceed on the hearing without an interpreter, even though your client needs one. My last point is that if you're using a court-provided court interpreter during a hearing, you should have access to your own interpreter during pre- or post-hearing meetings with your client or um, when you have any breaks during the hearing so that you can, you can freely communicate with your client. And it looks like we have some extra time. Um, Sarah and Liz, do you have anything else to add or can we open it up for questions? Let's open it up for questions. <laughs> questions, I was just pulling up the PDF doc. If we have extra time after questions, I can show you what I was talking about more so with the bookmark stuff, but go ahead. Somebody had a question. 
Hi, actually, this is Natalie Bogerman. I was just going to uh, interrupt for just a moment to do the second poll, if that's okay. Great. <laughs> All right, everyone. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and launch the other poll for CLEs. Please do make sure to respond in order to get your CLE credits. It'll be up for about two minutes, um, and then it'll vanish from your screen. So go ahead. Thank you. All right, do we have any questions? Somebody was very honest and said that they are not actively participating. <laughs> you know what, maybe just a, a second, because we, we've mostly talked about video hearings, um, and I know that some of us are also doing phone hearings at times. Um, just a few tips on that, like similarly think through the tech issues involved with that. One of the challenges I know I've found is that um, the kinds of proceedings that are being held um, via phone are um, the the hearing officers that are holding those only have the capacity to have two people on the line. And if you have counsel on the case, there's nobody to, to um, they don't have a, the technology to actually get three people involved in the phone hearing, which seems absurd. Um, but you need to kind of troubleshoot those sorts of issues. So, I mean, my practice has been to email the hearing officer in advance, let them know um, that, uh, that uh, I'll be representing the client, that I have the capacity to get them on the line if they call me first. Right, so I know it seems sort of silly, but like knowing the technology, the same goes for if you're doing these phone hearings and what might be some of the barriers. Um, you know, similarly, again, if it's a phone hearing for our clients, if they're relying on a pay by minute phone, maybe using that phone is not the best option and having the conversation with them about where they could participate the, in the hearing or potentially, again, bringing them into your office or someplace else where they would have access to a landline so that there is. Um, a solid connection. Um, the uh, the materials were also then are now in the chat, but they also were uploaded to the share file for this session. Um, should be available through the, the registration for this. I think there's a question about interpreters, G sir. Is there a polite way to ask the interpreter to interpret more often? That's a great question. So if you notice that your witness is speaking for a lot longer, but the interpreter interprets, um, let's say, one to two words, that's a problem. That's, um, that's when you should definitely say something. You can say, you know, interpreter, I just want to clarify, it sounded like my client was saying, some, saying a couple of sentences, but you only responded one to two words. Can you please confirm? Um, can you please reinterpret? What she was saying. I want to make sure I um, um, I understand everything accurately. So um, that's another that falls under maintaining control of the interpreter and dealing with any problems because um, uh, that's definitely a, a, a key that something is wrong. If there are other questions, can I just take a second, real quick, ladies, to actually show what I mean by the um, yeah, yeah. huh? Go ahead. Perfect. Okay, so I just put this document into the chat box, and as Sarah said, it's also um, on the share file or SharePoint file. 
what this is is, is the document that, I, that we're handing out. It has a checklist for how to prepare your witness. So literally, like, you can go through it and just make sure it's like a, a dummy checklist, which I need in my life for everything in my life. Um, I've also got a checklist for how to actually share exhibits. Um, it's specifically geared towards Zoom, but I think that it, it, all of the platforms are fairly similar at this point with regard to the ability to share screen. But what I wanted to show you specifically is in PDF, on either side, you guys have these toolbars. And on the left one, it's like my favorite little hidden one. So when you click on the left toolbar in a PDF, you get this little ribbon looking thing. And if you click on the ribbon looking thing, that's where you find your bookmarks. So I've already bookmarked this particular document just in three different places. So if I click on tips, that's gonna take me to the first page. Preparing the witness takes me to a different page. So if you think about this in context of when your exhibits are all in one PDF, it's a lot easier to just navigate through exhibit one, two, three by clicking on that. It's super easy to create a new bookmark. So let's say that I wanted to scroll down here and this is for mastering the use of exhibits. So I wanted to add a new bookmark. You just click on new bookmark and I'll write mastering exhibits. When you're doing this, just make sure that it's zoomed to the view that you want, because when you create the bookmark, like if I'm zoomed all the way in, then that bookmark's going to make it to where it's zoomed all the way in. The other beautiful thing of this is when you're sharing screen in these online hearings, there's usually a pause share button. So I have a second toolbar up top that you guys don't see, and I can pause share. Right now you see on the screen that it's checklist for mastering the use of exhibits, right? I just changed it on my screen, but you guys didn't see it yet. And then I just click resume share, and you didn't see what I was doing behind the scenes. So not only is this kind of bookmarked PDF document kind of easier to navigate um, for you during the hearing, but you can also click on pause share on most of the online platforms so that you don't necessarily have to let the court see that you're like struggling and trying to find whatever it is that you want to put up on the screen. The other thing that I've been doing with these um, bookmarked exhibit binders, which frankly Liz taught me how to do, um, is also just like this document has page numbers at the end, I've actually been page numbering the whole binder so that there's sort of two different ways to get to where you need to go. You can you know, toggle down to exhibit C if that's what you need to do, but you can also say this starts on page 17 or, you know, exhibit C begins on page 17, but we actually, I'm going to turn your attention to page 19 in the whole big thing. Um, it really does make it easier, both in terms of your own managing of like working with the um, exhibit binder, but I'm finding it, it's a lot easier with, um, both the judges, opposing counsel, parties, witnesses, like being able to also reference a page number is super, super useful to kind of get people to the right place. And um, so you kind of have two, two ways to get there. Do we have other questions? Uh, this is the quietest chat box I think I've ever been involved with. No, in we've stunned them into silence on a Friday afternoon, but I guess we have three minutes left. <laughs> They've checked out a while ago. The only other thing I kind of want to like mention to everybody that's watching because this is, oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. Um, this is, you know, we need to be aware of who has access to our clients and witnesses. So oftentimes I see judges use like a breakout room, for example, in Zoom, if there's an evidentiary argument that needs to be made and perhaps the litigants or the, the witnesses should not be privy to it. 
if you use a breakout room in any of these online platforms, be aware of what's happening to your witness, especially if you think about like a PFA type of a situation. The last thing you want to do is leave your victim client in the main Zoom room with the person that she or he is asking for an actual PFA against. So before going into the breakout room, you want to think about how is my witness going to be treated when I leave, when I'm not in the Zoom room to protect them. Judges can put the witness back into a waiting room or put them in a different breakout room so as to avoid any kind of problems of them being harassed in, in the main Zoom room or the main online platform room with the person that they're seeking protection from. Yeah, I've even had judges now where at Ring Central, or at least the judges don't seem to be using the breakout room aspect, and they've even just had parties log off if something's going to happen where it's not appropriate that they just be sitting there and, you know, with a, we'll call your phone, you know, clarifying the phone or saying we'll text you to, you know, to hop back on and log back in. So um, thinking through those issues for sure, if there's something that's attorneys only or a child's being interviewed or whatever it is. But that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. There's no questions. That's amazing. Um, should I put up the slide real quick with our contact information? It was kind of up um, very briefly at the beginning so that as people log off, if you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, we usually only prefer to get nice comments. If you have any uh, concerns or negatives, you can tell the plan that. You don't have to tell us directly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Wait, hold on. I see two chats. Here we go. What do we got? Oh, they're just thank yous to us. So, well, thank you everyone for participating today, particularly such a big group on a Friday afternoon. That's great. Mm. Hi, yeah, this thank is, you. This is Natalie. Thank you so much, Sarah and Chiser and Liz. This was um, very, very interesting to, to listen to. I, I love being here for it, and everyone appreciates the info. Oh. Everyone have a good rest of your day. Enjoy the weekend, okay? Likewise. Bye. Thank Thanks, you. Bye. Bye. Bye.